open up your word this morning? Would you help us see your bigness and your beauty and your love for us? Where we call people to repentance, would you convict on a level that my words never can? As we call people to receive grace, would you show your love in a way that my winsomeness could never attain? God, your words go before us and through us. And it's your authority that we, that we lean on this morning. So as we open up your word to us, would you teach us what you want to teach us, but most importantly, would you give us yourself? May we see you clearly in your word. And so in your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 24, if you don't have a Bible, <clears throat> we'll have the text up on the screen in a little while. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, man, I'd love to give you one. We value God's word here. We believe that it has the ability to convict of sin and draw people to repentance. We believe it's the, the thing that God uh, uses to teach us about himself. All right? It's effectual and does what God intends for it to do. We believe that it's the authority that we're basing everything we're going to talk on this morning. And so it's, it's not me talking. It's me trying to open up God talking here. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, man, we'd love to fix that. And I've got a case of them in the office. You can have one. All right, so we value God's word. Psalm 24, we're walking through a series that we're calling On the Same Page. It's a pretty simple concept. We are defining and unpacking major vocabulary words in the life of the church. That's the idea of being on the same page. We come from all these different backgrounds, myself included, culturally. Uh, you may notice that I sound real funny when I talk, and uh, there's this weird accent that just kind of hangs in the air, and that's okay, because I think it's endearing. All right? uh, but some of you think I'm just a little dim-witted. That's okay. All right? um, but here's the thing. Uh, we come from these different backgrounds experientially and religiously, and even within the Christian tradition, we, we come from different backgrounds there. And, and so it's, it's helpful for us, good for us, to kind of be thinking the same things when these major words are thrown around. And so we've looked at some specific, specific words. We've looked at gospel. We've looked at worship. We've looked at baptism and scripture. Uh, we've talked about those kinds of things. The last couple of weeks, we talked about mission and worldview. And we said last week that the mission of the church, the one job of God's people is to do what? Make disciples of all nations, right? Or another way to say that is make other followers of Jesus everywhere. Okay? That the one job of the church, our one responsibility, that every other responsibility flows around and through and is functions for the purpose of, is to make disciples of all nations. All right? And so uh, I, I think it's been valuable. All right? So this week, we're going to introduce a new word. You ready? Stewardship. Some of you are groaning internally. <laughs> stewardship. So what's Stewardship. Stewardship is the care for something that belongs to somebody else, right? Isn't that a pretty good working definition? Stewardship is a correct handling and a, a proper... Well, let's just go with handling. It's a proper handling of something that belongs to someone else. It implies that you're not the owner, right? You're a servant working on behalf of an owner. Stewardship implies that you're taking a servant role and that one day everything that's been handed to you will be handed back. Is that fair? I think so. When I say stewardship, I want you to be thinking New 
treasures. New treasures. Psalm 24. We're going to look at the first couple of verses. There's a lot more in Psalm 24 that we could spend hours talking about, but the psalmist, David, sets up the tone of what he's going to talk about in the first two verses. And so that will be what we use for our purposes this morning. Verse 1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. He says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The Bible teaches about as clearly as it teaches any other concept that everything in existence belongs to God. Why? Because he created it and actively holds it together. The Bible teaches that about as clearly as it teaches anything else. That literally everything belongs to him. And we can go to a bunch of other places in the Bible and look at that same concept. We can look at Genesis chapter 1, where the Bible teaches us that God creatio ex nihilo, which is just a Latin way of saying that God created everything out of nothing. We could look at the first chapter of John's gospel where he tells us that the word, and word has a a capital W, which means it's more than just a word, it's God himself, that the word was with God and that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Nothing was made without him. We can look at Colossians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul tells a church that's struggling with a small view of who Jesus is, that Jesus is in fact the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Bible teaches about as clearly as any other concept that God owns everything and it establishes that ownership and the fact that he is creator and sustainer of every molecule in existence if god let go for a second it would fall apart so if god owns everything that means i don't i don't like that anybody else that's not something that I immediately respond to with, yeah. There's this thing in me that kind of pushes back against that. How about you? If we're being honest, right? Like there's this thing in us that feels like that's some kind of, how, some kind of unjust thing. Like, like there, it's not just a, an everybody in human history feels this way thing, although it is that. Like, there's, there's some cultural layers on top of this, right? Like, I get that I'm saying that in a room that, it's, uh, that it takes part in a state that's very proud of its live free or die motto. Anybody else like to say that every once in a while when you're sticking it to the man? <laughs> live free or die. To say that in this room has a little bit of a cultural pushback too, right? And I may be a transplant, but I come from the state that's like, just you try to come and take it. <laughs> Texas is the one state worse than New Hampshire on this, right? People from New Hampshire may lay down their lives for their freedoms, but people from Texas may just kill you when you're trying. <laughs> come on, bro. <laughs> there is a don't tread on me 
chromosome just coursing through our veins. Right? And so to proclaim that God owns all and is in control of all, maybe there's this sinful tendency in me. It says, no, that can't be right. That can't be fair. But I also have kids. Anybody else have a conversation with their kid that's like, that's mine. No, it's not. <laughs> Sometimes my kids need to be reminded of that, right? That's my toy. Really? I don't remember your name being on the credit card when we swiped it at Target. Daddy gives and daddy takes away. Now that can be taken too far. You can be a jerk in that. But sometimes for the long-term character of my children, they need to be reminded of that reality. Anybody else? Yeah. And every once in a while, we'll scoop up some toys because they have three times, ten times as many as they need and we'll make a trip to Goodwill. Right? Yeah. My kids need to be reminded that eh, actually nothing ever belongs to you. It's not yours. We can fall into the same rut, right? But I, I worked hard. I did this. Let's say for a second that you could get 100% credit for something you created. And we can't say that because there's theological layers like inspiration, and, uh, and, and physical strength and things like that. We could, let's ignore those for a second, and let's assume that you could get 100% credit for something you made. Whose raw material did you use? And whose breath, whose air were you breathing as you did it? The Bible teaches about as clearly as it teaches any other concept that everything belongs to God. Sometimes like little kids, we say, that's my toy. C.S. Lewis said it this way in a book called Mere Christianity. He says, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment is given you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. I'm going to give God my life in service. You think he couldn't take it? The Bible teaches about as clearly as it teaches anything else that we are stewards, not owners. So for what purpose are we stewarding? Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, early on in the grand story arc of the Bible, we are told the story of a guy named Abram. Eventually, God's going to change his name to Abraham. Uh, here's the thing about Abram. There is nothing special about him. In fact, over and over again, he proves himself to be kind of the last guy God ought to choose. Like, he's kind of a jerk. Uh, he's, he sells his wife into what's essentially sexual slavery to protect his own life twice. Like, that guy's not the guy getting the award for nicest guy in the neighborhood. All right? He's a pagan idolater when God calls him out and says, Hey, I'm going to love you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to use you in my grand attempt to reconcile all things back to myself. And so in Genesis chapter 12, we see the first little part of this story play out. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country 
and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you or I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So let's call a timeout right there. There's more to the verse, but let's call a timeout. All right? What we just read there is nothing less than any huckster on TV would read and say, God is, God's job and desire in this world is to dote on you, to bless you, to give to you so that all your non-Christian neighbors can be jealous. All right? There's not a single thing in what we just read in, in Genesis 12, 1 and 2, A and B, if you, wanna, if you know how to piece up Bible passages like that, A and B. All right? There's nothing in those, that first two parts of Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 that sounds like a bit of a problem for a prosperity gospel preacher. So I could get myself a nice little leisure suit, and I could slick back my hair, and we could say, God's, God wants to bless you. He wants to make you wealthy. He wants to make you happy. The promise of God's blessing was that he would make God, that he would make Abram the father of a great nation. A great nation. He's currently childless and kind of older, right? but God's going to give him a family, a gigantic family, but he's also going to bless him materially. All throughout the story of Genesis and the life of Abraham, people are coming to Abraham because Abraham's the guy with all the stuff. He blesses him in a mighty, mighty way, but read on we must because the writer of Genesis does not leave us with that ending in verse 2. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, comma, so that you will be a what? I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God tells Abram that he's going to bless him in a mighty way. He's going to give him a gigantic family that ultimately culminates in being the family line of the Messiah himself. But he also blesses him physically, prosperally, uh, and materially. He gives them a bunch of stuff. Abraham's got more cows and more people and more money than everybody else around him. And everybody else around him knows that and sees that and always comes to Abraham whenever they have a need. God blesses him in an incredible way. But every ounce of that is given for Abraham to turn around and what Genesis 12, 2 says, be a blessing to everybody else. Everybody else. At a bare minimum, bare minimum, we hold up Genesis 12 and we say that every single thing that God gave to Abraham was given for the explicit purpose, explicit purpose of turning around and being a blessing to others. That the patriarch of God's covenant people was to use everything that God gave to him for the purpose of revealing God's glory to all the other nations. At a bare minimum, that's what we say. Anybody think that's only for Abram? It's not only for Abram. Last week we discussed how the idea of 
Jesus being seen as this supreme treasure in our life has to necessarily come before our one job. Remember when I I stood on the stage last week and I said that we had to talk about worldview first before we could talk about mission because it's that desire to pursue Jesus and chase after him instead that fuels the natural overflow of bring other people to him. That's what we said last week. That the one job of the church naturally flows out of a heart that loves Jesus supremely. Stewardship exists for the purpose of mission. Abraham's told, everything I'm going to give you is given to you for the purpose of showing my glory to the rest of the world. Everything God's given me and you is given to us for the express purpose of showing God's glory to the rest of the world. Stewardship exists for the purpose of mission. We practice stewardship not because we're supposed to turn a prophet back into God, but because we have reckoned that Jesus and the calling he's given us to make disciples of all nations far outweighs the shine of everything else in this world. We freely and joyfully hand them over to him for his purposes because we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and we will not be satisfied by temporary pleasures. When I say stewardship, I want you to be thinking new treasures. New treasures. We have placed our affections on something else. We see God's kingdom and his calling in our lives as a wise investment then. And we can freely live open-handed knowing that it's not actually ours anyways. I mean, we're playing with house money here, right? Like, we don't be negligent. We're, we don't be cavalier with God's stuff. There's a, there's a season for every steward to be prudent. There's a season for every steward to save. But that, that prudence, that, that desire to, to do it correctly and to sometimes not take the risk is not based in, rooted in a fear of that risk. It's rooted in the desire to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, Right? See, we can practice stewardship. We can practice open-handed living knowing that God is the one who owns everything anyways because at the end of the day, it's not ours. And it's not where our treasure is. And we're one day going to give it back to him anyways. It's an easy decision to make. So, what are some things that we are to be good stewards of? Literally everything, right? Everything. I tried to be a good pastor and come up with some major categories for you. I narrowed it down to six. Here's the problem. We could take those six away and do a different six easily. <laughs> but I, I tried to give you some big broad categories so let's take a journey through the Bible real quick, mostly through Paul's epistles. We're to be good stewards of our time. Ephesians chapter 5. We're to be good stewards of our time. Verse 
Look at verse, verses 15 and 16. Paul, in his instructions to a church, say this. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are what? So Paul's instruction to this church is that, hey, um, we're kind of running out of time here. Maybe we ought to get on the ball on some things, right? That's what he says. The days are evil. We don't have time to waste here, so let's be good stewards of our time. Now, there is a season for rest. In fact, God commands it. There is a season for entertainment. It's not, those aren't wrong things, but let's be honest here. My tendency is to sometimes lean too heavily towards rest. It is. You, you, you want the pastor to open up his heart and his failures to you? My tendency, my knee-jerk bent is to lean too close to the rest side and not close enough to the work side. Now, there may come a day where that shifts and I may need some loving people in my heart and life to say, hey, now, Stephen, there's a problem here. Let's, let's, let's take a break. That's not my nature. Maybe, maybe it's different for you. But Paul here, to a church that's struggling probably with the same thing I'm struggling with, is, hey, we don't have time to waste here. Let's get to work. The days are short. The days are evil. There's not time to lose. Let's, let's get on the ball, he says. We're to be good stewards of our time. We're also to be good stewards of our talents or our gifts. 1 Corinthians 12 When I say talents, I mean literal talents. Not like the parable of the talents, although that is a story about being a good steward, and you may want to read it later. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, look at verse 12. For just as the body is one, it has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the, be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So uh, the, the church in Corinth was struggling with this kind of idea that, uh, that some people were really celebrated because they had these certain giftings and certain ways to serve and to, and to pour into the church. And then there were other people who didn't have those giftings and they were kind of looked down on. And Paul said, hey, if you had a body that was made up of just ears, that would be kind of awkward. And so the, the, the thing he uses to compare is a human body. And, and, and so a human body that was just nothing but eyeballs, first of all, it wouldn't be a human body at all. It would be a pile of eyeballs, right? There's no, there's no living body in the pile of eyeballs. So Paul says, listen, every one of you has been given these special gifts by God in your personalities and your passions and the things that, you're, that he's made you good at and you pour into the one mission of the church together, each serving your own little part. That's, that's Paul's major emphasis there. So we're to be good stewards of these talents. We don't waste them. The body needs them, right? 
We don't act like they're unimportant, and we don't act like they're mine to keep. No, they're for the purpose of the one mission of the body. And so if we're good at something, we say, I'm good at this, let me help. That's what Paul is saying here. We are to be good stewards of our talents. We're also to be good stewards of our gospel opportunities. Colossians 4. <laughs> Colossians chapter 4. Look at verse 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Well, So that sounds similar to the time thing, but it takes a shift when we get to verse 6. Let your speech always be, what? Gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I don't think anybody in the room is kind of, flabbergasted at the idea that our words matter, right? Our words, our words affect things, and how we speak affects all kinds of things. And Paul here says, hey, listen, your words matter. Your words are to be seasoned like salt. Some of you are old enough to know what a salt-free diet is like. It's not fun, is it? Salt makes things better. It does. Salt makes things better. I'm just enough from the South to know that there's a lot of things that salt makes better, like watermelon. See, some of you are like, what? The answer is yes, try it. Salt makes things better. It brings out the flavors and highlights the flavors. There's this weird thing that happens on the molecular level that salt seems to animate and bring a bigness to other things. All right? And so salt is this thing that makes things better. And so Paul says, hey, listen, your, your speech, the way you talk to people, ought to make things better. They ought to lead people to Jesus instead of pulling people away from Jesus. He says your words matter. And your opportunities for speaking the gospel into people's lives, be careful what you say because that matters. Be a good steward of your gospel opportunities. Bring people to the cross instead of pushing them away from the cross. God also calls us to be good stewards of our bodies. 1 Corinthians 6. First Corinthians 6. Let's look at verse 18. Again, writing to the church in Corinth, Paul says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The, Paul here teaches that, listen, like all of us kind of understand because we've been in church long enough probably or at least been around Christian people or things, seen things on the internet long enough to know that God calls, counts all sin the same. The punishment for all sin is, is the wrath of God, eternal hell because, and we can talk about that another time, it's, it's definitely worth it, okay? Here's the point though, that doesn't mean that the earthly consequences of all sin is the same. They're 
There are different consequences for sexual sin than there are for me eating the second piece of pie. There are. Both, both flow from a heart that doesn't trust God and would rather satisfy myself, but me getting a little fatter than I normally am is different than what Paul here describes as sinning against your own body. It says, flee sexual immorality. But I own my body. It's my body. Not if you're a follower of Jesus. The Bible says it's been bought with a price. In 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on to tell them there that we will one day stand before God and give an account for what we did with our body. Have fun with that one. We're to be good stewards of our bodies. We're also to be good stewards of our relationships. Back to Colossians 3. I'm realizing now I probably should have put these in order so that we hung out in 1 Corinthians or hung out in Colossians, but you know, whatever. Colossians 3. Look at verses 12 and following. Again, he's speaking to a church, and so he tells these church members this. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate, or compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive, verse 14, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called, in one body and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God and whatever you do in word or deed do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him so this sounds a little weird but Paul here is talking about the context of a, of a church and he, he says listen you exist in this church body for a purpose. You are to steward this purpose well. He says, let your, let your relationships with other people, other people that you have fellowshiped together, be characterized by specific things. And what were those specific things? He says, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. What does that have to do with stewardship? Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You, you know what your relationships exist for? The buildup of other believers. The Bible teaches that my relationship with you and your relationship with me exists in God's grand plan so that I will lovingly teach and correct you and you will lovingly teach and correct me. We steward our relationships, right? They exist for the purpose of building up the body. The body exists for the purpose of our one mission. So we have to be good stewards of our relationships so that we don't mess up the mission part, right? Yeah. Not only are we to be good stewards of our relationships, here's the fun when we also are to be good stewards of our resources. 2 Corinthians 8. Starting in verse 1. 
We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Uh, this is the city of Corinth, which is in kind of central Greece. Macedonia was a region northern Greece, and so it's kind of this area that they would have known but been distant from. I say this not as a command, uh, brothers. Sorry, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the, command, the, among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy their ex- and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. Verse 7, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So the way that this is fleshing out, the backstory behind what Paul says here is that Paul is traveling through Macedonia and he lays before them some needs of the gospel. He says, hey, we got a need for this, we have a need for this. And he says that the churches in Macedonia leapt at the opportunity to be a part of funding that thing. Here's the problem with Macedonia. They podunt, all right? They're the rural church on the fringe. Corinth is the major port city that's got all the clout, Right? Paul says, no, in their poverty, in their affliction, the fact that they don't have so much, they heard the opportunity to be a part of what God's doing, and they leapt at that opportunity and said, we want to be a part of that. So much so that it stung a little bit. That's the story that Paul tells us. So much so that it it cost them a little bit. Paul, speaking to a church that he loves dearly, and had all kinds of patience for. Said, hey, 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 Corinth, you're good at a lot of things. You got, you got a church full of really bright people. You got a church full of really talented people. You obviously one, love one another. You are good at this, and you are good at this, and you are good at this. You're not so good at the thing that the Macedonians are great at. to see that you excel in this one also. We're to be good stewards of the resources God has given us. We could could dump those and we could talk about how we're to be good stewards of creation. We could talk about how we're to be good stewards of the gospel doctrine that's been once for all handed down among the saints. We could talk about how we are to be good stewards of this privilege of voting and speaking into our political system that no one else in history has ever had. We ought to be good stewards of those things, right? We don't hold those responsibilities lightly or flippantly. We are to be good stewards. When I say stewardship, I want you to be thinking new treasures. So how do we respond to all this? It really depends on who you are. As I can put together, there's probably four different groups of people in the room. Number one are members of Nashua Baptist Church who are faithful givers here. Thank you. Thank you. You have funded, sometimes sacrificially, the mission of God here. 
like the Macedonians, you, you've given to the point where it cost you a little something because you valued God and his mission more than earthly treasures. Thank you. Maybe, prayerfully consider taking another step of commitment. I don't know. The second group of people are people of Nashua Baptist Church who are not invested here. To you, I'd say, we need help. We need help. To, to let your brothers and sisters carry a load that you're not willing to carry is not exactly the best way to love them. It's not. By being a member here, you've said, I'm invested in this body of people to be supportive of and a part of the mission of God here. We could use your help. And in love and in grace, I want to help you understand that there's a way of taking instead of giving that's unchristlike. Hey. <laughs> but listen, there's a reason I'm speaking in general terms because I don't know who you are. I don't. I don't know who gives here, and I never will. Not only do I not want to know, I'm not allowed to know. I don't know who gives and who doesn't. Jesus, though, does. <laughs> Take that up with him. If you're here and you're not invested here, why not? We, we need your help. I don't know who gives and who doesn't, but I do see our budget. And I do know that for a few months in a row now, we've failed to meet our monthly expectation. Like, I hope, I hope that if that were happening at your house, you would eventually have a tough conversation with the rest of your family. Right? We're on the same page there? If month after month you're, you're spending more than you're bringing in, eventually you're going to have to have a tough talk, right? If you're here but not invested here, man, we could use your help. We could. There's a third group of people. Those who are Christians but are members of other churches. Man, I'm glad you're here this morning. I am. We believe that the kingdom is way bigger than us and way bigger than what goes on here. We do. We also believe that we live in a world that's becoming increasingly more difficult to address topics like this because every one of us, myself included, has TBN. We have seen example after example of people who have abused this stuff. And so we live in a world that's becoming increasingly more difficult for the pastor to stand on the stage and say, let's talk about money. Am I right? If you're a Christian here and a member of another church, let me lovingly tell you something that your pastor may be terrified of saying. He needs you invested there. He does. He needs you to pour in there. We're glad you're here, but one day you're going to go home, back to your home church, and God has called you and the rest of the people he's called to your home church to buy in, pour in, invest in there. So go. Go do it. For the glory of God and his kingdom, we're on the same team. Go home and give. There's a fourth group of people. Not only do we have members here who are invested and members here who aren't, not only do we have Christians of other church families, but we also have a bunch of non-believers in the room who are working through the claims of Jesus trying to figure out if he is who he says he is and if it's worth following at all. What you, what you need to hear me say this morning are two things. 
Number one, our God is a whole life Lord. He's a whole life Savior. He is far more concerned with your everyday actions than just where you will spend eternity. So if you're processing through what it means to follow Jesus, yes, Jesus is concerned about what you do with your pocketbook. Add that as you process. As you work through the claims of whether or not Jesus is worthy of your following, know that he is not, a, he's not an eternity-only Savior. He is an all-day, every-day Savior. And he calls you to live accordingly. The second thing you need to hear me say this morning is that it is beyond worthless for you to invest in a kingdom that you're not a member of. My job as the pastor here is to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that we can send them out the door doing the one job of the church. And sometimes, I'm going to have to stare at our people and say, we got an issue, let's fix it. There are going to be times where I have to speak directly to the church body. So what you need to hear me say is, I'm not asking you for money. God doesn't need it. He doesn't. He doesn't need your money. He owns everything anyways. It's his. If he calls you to give, great. Investing in a kingdom you're not a member of is beyond worthless. It is. So if you're here this morning and you're working through the claims of Jesus and you're trying to figure out, is Jesus who he says he is? Is is he worthy of my following? The first question for you this morning is will you, it's not will you give, it's Will you submit to his lordship? If that's you this morning, we're going to pray and we're going to sing and it'll be an opportunity for people to respond. All of us respond. But for those of you who don't know Jesus, you can come to meet him in the, this morning. What that looks like is that you repent of your sin and call out to him as Lord and, and that lordship definitely means certain things. And so it's not a lighthearted thing that we do. You ought to count the cost before you do so. But if that's you this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. I'll be down here to talk if anybody needs to talk. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, our job this morning is to ask serious questions about our life and actions. Have I honestly counted Jesus, reckoned him as far greater treasure than anything he might call me to give up? And if not, maybe we need a bigger picture of who Jesus is. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. You respond how God calls you to respond. Father God, thank you for your scriptures. Even when they sting even when the subject is culturally uncouth. God, we, our desire is to see you be made famous here in Nashua and all other places. And you've called the people of your kingdom to take the gospel to those places. And you've called the people of your kingdom to buy in wholeheartedly to that mission. That mission is a lot easier to sell when it's somebody else's stuff. 
but it's far more satisfying when it's mine. God, convict me of sin. Call me to repentance where I cling to fleeting pleasures. Would you help me let my hands go? God, you've called me to be a whole life steward. Even the air I breathe belongs to you. May I be a good steward of the relationships that I have and the gospel opportunities that I have and the environment that I live in and my political voice and all the countless other things that we could spend the next several weeks talking about. God, for those in here who don't know you this morning, would you make yourself known to them? Would we all walk out of here this morning having tasted and seen that you are good? And so in your name we pray, amen.